Within 10 seconds, I saw him shapeshift. It was an amazing experience. Things are just better when I'm hardcore positive, you know? Yeah, it just, there's nothing that can compare. You know, wow, you know, I'm not this kind of, I'm thinking to myself, I'm not this kind of guy. When I used to watch that movie, I would cry, feel the breath, but now, I laugh and celebrate. It was an amazing experience. And immediately, I felt a warmth and a lightness. Just a wonderful, tingling sensation. Um, and toward the end, a lot of heat. Every day I would wake up and realize how pathetically unhardcore my life was. Welcome to Hardcore Positive. Hardcore Positive.
Yo. How's everybody going? Uh, you're listening to Hardcore Positive. I am Francis Inferno Orchestra. Uh, on today's show, decided to conduct an interview with my friend Graz. He's uh, known for many things, but mostly known for his sunglasses. Um, does everything creative and artistic under the sun, but we bonded and met through music. And uh, yeah, Graz, a fellow dingo from Australia. Welcome. Thanks. How's it going? Hello, dingoes. I'm good. It's a beautiful sunny day here in Los Angeles, California. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Um, me and Graz, funnily enough, moved to LA pretty much exactly the same time by total coincidence. Um, but we met many moons ago at a club in Melbourne, stayed in touch, and actually Graz uh, interviewed me uh, at a club that he helped open up in Hanoi called Savage, which we'll get to later. So I'm kind of returning the favor oh. or the experience, maybe. <laughs> We're going to do it. Yeah. Is it a favor? Yeah. Yeah. Is it a favor? I don't know. Let's see what comes out of it you, and then let the audience decide. Sure. Okay. Well, I don't know. Let's get started. You're a, you're a country boy, aren't you? You're not from... You're from... I know you as Graz from Sydney, but you're not from Sydney. You're a country boy. No. I mean, it's a bit of a scattered journey. I, I actually, I was born in San Francisco, like in the city, and then... No shit. Yeah. And then I moved to Sydney when I was two... And then I moved to Byron Bay, Australia, which is a really small town in Australia. It's a bit of a tourist destination now. But when I first moved there, there was about, I think, less than 5,000 people. There was no, no traffic lights, no anything. So that was back in the day. Um, so I grew up for most of my life in Byron Bay, this tiny little kind of surf town. I love Byron Bay. It's mm. so nice. So, yeah. Um, and then, so I was there until I was about... Uh, 18 actually yeah and then I left I moved to just above San Francisco to where right. my dad was living and then so yeah I guess the most the most part I'm a I've got like country bringing up it's not like I was a farmer or anything right but it was that kind of small town vibe okay are you, so are you with the current situation of the bushfires going on you, do you have family or friends are pretty heavily I mean you would through Sydney obviously but yeah, I mean, obviously everyone is affected in some way. Most of the people, like I don't know anyone who has who has directly had their house torched, but I mean, you know, all the people that I know live in the metropolitan areas. I don't know many people who live out in the bush, right. but obviously everyone is affected yeah. in some way. And I mean, I'm just a little bit, I'm a bit removed from Australia just because I, I left so many years ago. But I mean, my heart still goes out to all the people who are dealing with that it's a mega mega deal it's so messed up um yeah for anyone that's tuned in or will listen to this later yeah you're obviously very well aware of the really devastating bushfires that's going on right now in australia it's affecting everybody mm. um there's been a really great support from the music community um yeah, people giving their bits and I'll do a little plug later because there's places you can put your money, but we'll get on with talking about this. Um, I wanted to ask you, 
you know, we'll talk about your glasses, but I, I wanted to first ask how you got into music because that's how we kind of met each other. But I want to know, like, did you come in, were you a raver? Yeah, well, I mean, the very first thing was I was playing guitar when I was like six, seven, eight. But I wasn't like a total music head. I just liked it. But yeah. I wasn't like someone who, you know, like was going down the route of a jazz guitarist like a Tommy Emmanuel or anything like that. Mm. But I always liked it. And then um, I played in a few like bands as a kid. There was a thing in, in the hometown. It was called Gigs for Kids where these people organized for kids to form bands and play at like the markets and stuff like that. So mm. I did that a little bit. Um, and then, I mean, where I kind of got fully hooked was I worked in this record store. It was a record store slash T-shirt shop selling CDs and records and T-shirts Yeah. in Byron Bay. And um, I would, had to help out with the orders. And back then it was all like analog distribution. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of had to learn about what distribution houses had, what kind of genres and what record labels and I've really kind of quickly understood like that kind of network of how music was organized. Yeah. And not only on how record labels used to group, you know, certain styles of music and certain bands and things like that, but then also producers and how Mm. producers started to kind of, you could hear a producer's sound. And so I started really nerding out on that kind of analytical side of music on who's who and, you know, where, where does it come from? And because this is all, yeah, back when it was like that was a that was how yeah how music organized itself. So how old are you when you were working in the shop? Fifteen. Okay. Yeah, and then Early start. Yeah, and then there was a few disco records that I had heard that really, like, took me to another place. I mean, I as soon as I heard these records, I had these sort of like romantic ideas about what it was like in Paradise Garage, what it was like in 54 or what it was like. And I heard these and I was so just arrested by that romantic idea. Do you remember what some of those records were? One actually, one that really kind of grabbed me was, do you remember remember Paul Main? He was a DJ in Melbourne. Yeah. He's like old school, old before our time. Anyway, he he played um, Make It Last Forever by... The South Soul Orchestra, which yeah. was originally by Donna McGee, but um, the Larry Levan mix. So uh, he played that at the right time, in the right place, and that one really kind of set me Struck off. Struck a note. Yeah, it's yeah. a 10-minute, 100 BPM disco jam. It's, you know. mm. um, so there's, yeah, that, that was a really important record for me. And then also um, uh, CBS, the cybernetic broadcasting system, was another thing which I was completely hooked on, Yeah, which was you know what they called cosmic disco and italo disco and it was a radio station that was run by robots Mm. uh, and that fascinated the hell out of me too you know all this stuff was so much more romantic coming from a small town yeah because everything that i knew like you you know i could i could romanticize as out there this is what must happen in the big city this is what happens you know there's places where people just go and you know like go crazy to music and mm. so yeah the romantic idea but so that's that's what hooked me and then that's when i started to buy records and collect records and and kind of just like yeah a mass a, a collection like mentally and physically yeah and then i didn't start djing for ages later like i had to end up djing like out of necessity because i needed extra cash and i had like it, it was a very natural thing me to start DJing 
because I had all the music and I knew everything, but I just, I was never interested in doing it commercially. I was always just like, you know, doing it at home. So Not even mixing, but... Was that... So then you from there were just doing locally. Did you then go to Sydney? Was that when you also started doing um, Sunwear, sunglasses? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, in the timeline is I moved to Sydney um, when I was 19 after a year in, in San Francisco. Yeah. And um, that's when I did... Yeah, first I started this with another guy, this uh, sunglasses brand. Yeah. And then about maybe two or three years after that is when I started DJing. Right. And that was all in Sydney. And then I was, I was in Sydney 10 years and I guess that was a, the nucleus that set up the shape of everything for the rest of my life, which was pretty much product design f- focused around the sun, the sunglass and nucleus and then music yeah. and how the sort of design and music worlds merge. But I was always in the kind of the center of that. Because you were pretty linked up with like the Bang Gang crew yep. and all those kind of... Well, because I did the sunglasses for Subi, which was the adjacent... Dan uh, single yep. thing. Yeah. So Bang Gang, for anyone listening, was a group of DJs when I was about 16 or 17 was like, they were pretty much the like Ed Banger Australian mm. version. Yeah. And there was a fashion company called Su- is Subi still going yeah that's a long story but they actually they opened up a shop in LA it's got bought by like a venture capital company or uh, yeah because Subi back then was like you'd go to the electro parties and Subi was what everyone was wearing yeah and it was yeah it was super hype and super wild well I mean like I think like four of the six people who did the bang gang party worked at Subi right so it was you know it was like a very that was like a big kind of part of it yeah that was an amazing party and that was also a really inspiring thing to to like get involved in djing seeing gus who's now dreams from multiculti yeah and um ajax adrian uh, who's no longer here those two watching those two guys play and how people reacted that was my first real taste of like real life dance floor communication yeah stuff. watching gus used to go under gus the hood rat and yeah what i still see them actually i worked um on the lights at one of michael delaney's clubs Honky so, no so grandma oh, and yeah. they used to do monthly uh bang gang parties and mm. they were pretty wild and yeah seeing them do it was sick especially yeah ajax and gus especially and even like yeah gus is pretty crazy and like technically just like i think he really ajax i i kind of missed ajax for the most part but because gus was the youngest he would when sort of banging was becoming less and less gus was still Mm. coming down to melbourne a lot and i got to witness him doing his thing and fun fact bag raiders originated out of banging really yep and another fun fact I don't know if I'll get shot for saying this, but um, Gus was actually in Bag Raiders. Wow. Very, like the very before any of the albums came out, before this kind of stuff. Gus could have been part of the meme, man. Could have. Yeah. Yeah. Have you seen the Bag Raiders meme? Yeah. 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 Well. (laughs) I've seen many. All right. So so you were in Sydney for 10 years. Um, you obviously started your, your glasses and then you're also doing the sunglasses division for Subi. Mm-hmm. What prompted the move to Hong Kong? Because that's where we kind of, I didn't see you for a long time. And then yeah. we kind of hung out in Hong Kong and 
reconnected what was oh, up with that i mean it's a kind of it's a boring story i kind of just moved there out of necessity i was doing sunglasses and making them just over the border where all the sunglasses are made and um all my business was done out mostly outside of australia so i was mm. flying around the whole time going to trade shows and doing all this stuff i was never in australia and hong kong is just a way better place to do business for, yeah for so many reasons for e just ease of doing international business Right. And because I was never in Australia, it just made sense that I moved there. It was kind of my second base anyway because of warehousing and production and stuff. So it's not a very interesting story how that kind of came about. But mm. I guess it's interesting on what it, how it catapulted the rest of my life. Yeah, because that, that. that's the, the next thing I wanted to talk about was uh, you were involved in starting up a club in Hanoi. In Vietnam, which with some people that did you meet them in Hong Kong? Yeah, we were we were best buds. Yeah, so so how did that all come to fruition of setting up Savage? If people might know, it's a it's I guess it's become a bit of a destination in the world, but it was yeah, uh, probably the only club of its kind in Hanoi, and probably part of a small group of somewhat cool venues in Vietnam as a whole. As Vietnam is quite a hardcore lame tourists i mean in if you go into ho chi minh it there is like it's a great country but yeah it's just catered for tourists but these like small group of venues trying to offer something kind of good um how did that come about you know was there something you were trying to achieve with the club well so i mean the music community in Hong Kong was obviously very small. It's a really like a finance city. It's very expensive. It's not easy to have like smaller and experimental things going on. But you know, a couple a couple people had nights around and and did things. I was one of those people. And then also a friend of mine had a, a booking agency, and he would bring um, DJs from where all around and put them on. And so yeah. Um, but I mean, it was a pretty organic conversation to say, like, how can we do something that we're really proud of? How can we do something? How can we create some kind of utopia mm. where already expats living in this kind of dream world? You know, everyone who, who's here is all kind of living overseas. You know, yeah. it's very. And so, how you know that kind of um, desire to create this sort of fantasy utopia existence is an easy you know progression mm. because you're already sort of there you're already in this kind of fantasy where everyone's sort of living overseas away from all of their regular reference points and families and stuff so i mean that conversation was obviously something that came about um regularly i mean how come there is no berghain in asia yeah why is it i mean obviously you could ask that question about why is there no berghain anywhere else besides <laughs> berghain but why is there no berghain in latvia <laughs> yeah well there's uh i mean in Lithuania there's open club but um but yeah no so that's um that's we were kind of speaking about that like the, the fact that Asia is a place where like there's room to experiment it's free from all of the um history so that was like a, a blessing and a curse is like it didn't have a really rich dance music history mm. which was great because you can really do things and, and dance music in general around the world especially kind of like the underground stuff not not EDM was getting through the internet like a, a bit more of a um, in, into the zeitgeist, you know. Mm. And um, so 
but yeah, also in saying that, if you were to try and do anything because you, because you didn't have the history of it, people didn't really know what to do because they didn't really understand that kind of culture. Yeah. Anyway, so that conversation was something that kept happening, and then it got more real and more real about let's do it, let's create a utopia, let's let's create a place where people can just be free and mm. um, and and express themselves and we're the people to do it and this is the place to do it and now is the time to do it everything just kind of felt right about that we had mm. to do that somewhere in asia mm. um i mean observatory set the blueprint that it was possible but it's still really wild to throw this kind of a thing into that kind of a place because yeah the local community would just be like yeah well i mean like, that's that's true is um there's people who kind of set the blueprint all around. There's, you know, within different you know, sort of like communities within, like in every every city in Asia, had their own version of what they could try and achieve in mm. underground music. You yeah. know, and sometimes there was heavier government restrictions. Sometimes, I mean, there was all sorts of different things that ended up shaping um, how each club was. But there was always something. I mean, you played in all of those clubs mm. all around. You know they're everywhere um not everywhere but there's kind of like there's there's about five to ten that are like all, all achieve trying to achieve the same kind of thing yeah and i think it's funny because the restrictions that kind of come with it have always something I've, I've noticed and it's it's cool to see people trying to you know start things and but there's always going to be like this weird feeling or something that's just holding it back from full yeah getting there and so that was a really i guess a big learning um curve for me because from the outside when you see these places that are pretty much the wild west they have no laws everything is just corruption mm. and you see like people can just do things they just open businesses in you know like the 20th floor of a building yeah. and a, you know a nightclub that goes all night in a place where all of that stuff is meant to be completely illegal in a shopping center yeah yeah you know so there's so many like i don't want to name check any of the places but there's i mean throughout asia there's all this stuff so you kind of get that dream that it can happen but then the reality sets in that all of that kind of lawlessness and you know, ability to do whatever really does come with this invisible ceiling, this invisible box on, on where you can operate. And that's why there's all these places that are great clubs with great DJs and good, you know, amazing sound systems all sprinkled throughout Asia. And mm. you still haven't really heard of any of them. Like, unless you're in that scene over there, there's a reason why Bergheim is a household name or the garage was a household name or there's all these other household names. Mm. Um, and you never hear of those because it, it you you, are, you do have to operate within these strange invisible constraints. Yeah, yeah. But then, so you started Savage and you know built it up, and you're no longer a part of it. Um, no. What happened? Well, I mean, it depends how how long you want to go in the story. So I mean, there was. A lot of us involved. You can make a brief if you want. Just, you know, <laughs> yeah. Also, the time restrictions. But yeah, feel um, free to do. The There was a lot of us involved. Yeah. Um, there was me and another guy. We, uh, we, are the two, we, we both moved there to set it up and get it going. But then there was other people involved. We had some Vietnamese partners. It was actually, it was a French guy and his Vietnamese wife. And then um, some other people who were also from Hong Kong who... We're in the, the music biz and um, 
it was it was quite a heavy undertaking. We kind of gutted this entire building, and it was it was uh, you know it was on the main street, and we had to completely soundproof a dance floor and acoustically treat it, and you know it was and then we got flooded just before we were about to open. There was a meter of water in the club, <laughs> um, so that put us back three months, and it, yeah, it was a pretty big pretty big deal. But so there was a lot of us involved, and then um, it kind of. I guess in hindsight, it was like it played out like any typical nightclub story would, um, or one that would one that you'd read about in a book. That you know, it started, it was not busy, and then it was busy, and then and like people started to understand what we were doing, and a lot of the local community started to get involved. All the people that I dreamed about appeared which I didn't know if they would. I didn't know if there was if there was going to be a big queer community, a trans community. Like, would these people exist? You know, we built the house. Will mm. they show up or will it just be kind of like English teacher expats who are just mm. there to go and kind of get, get messed up, you yeah. know? And so they appeared. And so all that sort of started coming together. We had incredible people come and play and it was a, it was a great thing. So... That sort of started getting steam and then that rolled into, you know, a boiler room and all the kind of marks starting to be checked off and all the right, um, you know, collaborations and, and alliances with people and resident advisor getting, you know, like writing good things and it, all those things started to happen and then it kind of went from a group of people who all were, you know, in it for the music. <laughs> As, as it all starts out to like just sort of the egos and the drugs and all that kind of stuff yeah. started to come in and like, you know, one person wanted to claim like they were the king and that, it, that they were the person all along and mm. all this kind of weird stuff. But, you know, in history, you kind of hear these stories a lot about, especially in that kind of nightclub world where it's this weird, you're in this weird fantasy world. And yeah, it does take a, a very kind of... Um, interesting character because you know in underground music there's no money to be made yeah. at all like no one's making money in, yeah. in in dance music in underground dance music so that takes a, people who stay involved and and keep kind of organizing it that takes a very particular kind of character yeah you know there's there's a lot of i mean there's a lot of worship within a very small community you know where being a, a kind of underground dance music DJ person or nightclub person, there is a very small amount of people who highly revere you because you're the head of this kind of fantasy world of yeah. music and drugs and so a lot of tall poppy syndrome. Yeah, but then so it takes it takes people who you know there's a big ego aspect to it. Mm. Um, there's a lot of drug addicts who like that's their excuse to just stay high is you know they can live in a world that, that allows them to just kind of keep doing that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's a weird kind of person that it brings in, you know, especially people who decide to dedicate their life to it. It's a, it's a weird one. But um, I mean, that's not to say that, you know, like there is, there is great successful examples out there. But um, anyway, so that's kind of what happened. That's is that egos and drugs and stuff got involved and it wasn't really like... Um, yeah, it was strange because it's, I couldn't really tell you like that there was like a clear difference of opinion. Like I wanted it to go one way, someone else wanted it to go another and there was mm -hmm. any direction. Everyone was on the same page for that. We all kind of wanted the same thing. 
in that regard. It was more just, um, yeah, people just kind of, one guy's ego got so big that he just wanted to claim responsibility for the entire thing and burn everyone around him at any cost. Fuck. And, um, and so that I, I got to a point where I was like, well, this isn't worth it. Like, what's, what's the point? There's no, if, that, if you're willing to go that low for this, then there's no, there's no point. So I kind of like, uh, yeah, I, I moved on and, um, yeah, that's the story, I guess. Yeah. You know, right. you know, that's a brief, that's a the short version. Yeah. And so you, when you, after all that, you moved straight here? Uh, yeah, no, well, I hung around for about a year. I mean, I still had my night at the club and it that's was- That's right. It was you a, were doing a thing away from Savage for- quite some time no no i still had my night at the club yeah um for a while it, that was actually one of the last straws um we had been speaking about like how do we how do we resolve the issues and how can we how can you know how can we get through this but i was still obviously like involved in doing my night right until the last moment yeah but um i know and i did i did dj at a couple of things and i kept djing more around the region and and focusing less on just like my involvement at the club and doing a lot more around Asia hmm. but um yeah so wait what was the question I said yeah you, you so you moved here afterwards oh yeah and then so that took a while and then I kind of realized that um I was only living there for um for the club and so when that kind of all deteriorated it made no sense yeah and I've got other work stuff over here and um I was kind of actually really longing to live in a place where people spoke the same, I could speak the language. You know, it kind of sounds strange, but after years and years of like knowing the guy who worked at the corner store and seeing him almost daily and knowing nothing about him, after a while that kind of really hit me. I was like, there's so many people that I haven't met, so many relationships I haven't developed because I'm in this kind of land where there's such a cultural difference and such mm. a language barrier that it's really fun and bizarre for a while, but after a while I started really wanting that kind of connection with people and that, that mm. to, you know. Yeah, for sure. I think, um, yeah, it gets to a point that you're just like, yeah, I just want to be able to talk freely to everyone and communicate mm. without having to be like, hold on, how do I say? Yeah, but yeah, so you moved. Um, so then you hung out for a year and then you came here and in the middle of all that, you um you've been doing some cool stuff you've now the creative director at will am's sunglasses mm. division called Eli. um yeah did they poach you like that's um i mean that kind of came full cycle because um he used to come in and buy the entire subi collection when he was touring in australia he would come and buy come and buy out the entire thing and they were, i think they were his favorite glasses right and so then cut 10 15 years later where he was like um i want to start a sunglasses brand these are you my were favorite guy. glasses yeah yeah so that's kind of how it um came about and you're still so, with yeah. you're still with him today still with him yeah i mean does yeah. he get involved in the creative process at all of course i mean but like <laughs> but i mean you're the you're it's yeah because i mean it could be easy and i mean i'm sure there's a lot of people that when like a famous person they're like hey i want to do like jeans like maybe they they don't actually get involved they just put their name on it and stuff but no he is like 
a freak for, for glasses. He, okay. Like, he lives and breathes glasses. He owns thousands of pairs. I mean, unlike, you know, there's people who also say they like glasses. He wears them every day. I, try and find a photo of him without glasses, pretty much. That's true, actually. He's a sunglasses aficionado. He knows everything about them. So, he's in, like, he probably loves glasses more than I do. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I'm 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 good at my job, but he he really loves glasses. So he gets involved, yeah, in every part because he's just like so into all the details and how they can be. And like you know, he's also the guy who's wearing them all the time. And yeah, right. It was his decision. It's his like he. It's his. It's his thing. He was like, I want to do this. So it's not like someone came to him and did some license deal. Yeah. And just you know. Yeah. Okay. Well, on the topic of sunglasses, I found in a 10-year-old interview video with you something about being banned by Ray-Ban. Oh, yeah. They just... What's the, can you uh, dip into that one? I don't even actually know. The main thing is, is that 10-year-old interview video must be removed and I don't know how to take it down from YouTube. It's a Vimeo, actually. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, it's spreading. Yeah. Um, but... Basic. I mean, there's nothing much to it. I was invited as, um, because you know, in Sydney, I was a, uh, you know, like I was always at all the parties and whatever. I was DJing around at all the places, and um, there was plenty of press, like a lot of press stuff, you know, as a kind of Sydney person. And then um, I think they clocked that they had invited me as like a whatever a guest of theirs, and then they clocked that I was also involved in the sunglasses world and that I was a designer and that that might not be the best thing, you know. At so, their, you got cancelled. So, I got can- they, they de-invited me and they said, sorry, <laughs> you actually can't come. <laughs> but that was the end of it. I mean, there was no scandal. There's no anything. I was like, yeah, that makes sense. I get it. Damn, you don't I was, want I was hoping for some, for some real juice on that one because mm-hmm. uh, just the way you brushed it off in the in the 10-year-old video, I was like, maybe 10 years have passed, maybe I wish there was a, I wish there was a scandal, but... No, no, there was zero. They just, they just said, yeah, you can't come. And I was like, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Like, yeah. you don't want a guy who has his own thing to promote at your, you know. Yeah. So. <laughs> All right. So, before you jump in on the mix, um, I also want to talk to you about something that I think is really cool. It's the movie score you did. Oh, yeah. For Ellery in Paris, which is oh, a one. documentary by... Patrick, is it Pierce or yeah. Pierce? All right. About uh, Kim Ellery being the third Australian fashion designer being invited to Paris Fashion Week and you did the score. Yeah. Yeah. Who was the first, I wonder? I know Colette Dinnigan was before her, I'm not but sh- anyway. I'm not sure. I didn't research that deep enough. Um, but I just looked at your IMDb. But I knew you did it anyway. But I, uh, I just kind of got the basic. But I just want to ask you like do you know kim ellery like how did did that come about are you guys old friends from sydney or well that's like yeah so we used to one we used to date oh two we used to work in the same bar as we were starting our brands right um and then three after we had started our brands um we collaborated and did a some sunglasses which were like a massive hit they yeah, were like the, I did see that. Yeah. yeah. And so, and then I had also done all the music for all her runway shows yeah. as she kind of developed. So, we've got like a really long, deep collaborative and friend relationship. Yeah. So, because how that came about was they were interviewing me as a collaborator. Yeah. Like a long time collaborator of her 
her brand. Um, in the documentary, I got interviewed and then they asked if I would, because I'd done all the music for her brand, would I do music for this one piece, which is in the middle of the documentary where there's like a, kind of like a modern ballet mm. and the, they're kind of ripping clothes off that she had designed for this thing and, and asked if I would, in you know, capture her signature in, in music for that. And then so I submitted that. Um, and they were like, we're really, we really, really like it. Will you do the rest of the film? And I kind of freaked out. I was like, well, I've never really done that before. Yeah. I know I can, I have got the skills to do it, but I'm not so sure. And then um, I was like, yeah, I, I want to do it. Sick. And so that was it. Then I did it. And then that moved, led, moved on to more films. And I did another film with Patrick who did this film that was shown in the Guggenheim in the Palais de Tokyo. That was like... Yeah, and that's the one that you... You performed it. Yeah, I, I did the score after the screening in the Guggenheim. That yeah. Was, that was really amazing. Yeah, how, how, please, like, divulge. How did that feel? Um, it was... shitting... It was daunting. Shitting your bricks? It was daunting. Yeah. I mean, you know, like, when you... I mean, yeah, I kind of feel like I'm saying all these kind of cliches. You know, you when you go to these kind of big institutional places, they've got so much kind of backed by so much clout and so many of the best artists yeah. and all of these things and in even the architecture itself is incredibly like arresting yeah and then you know there's a piano in the middle of the room and it's like that's you yeah you, it's like you, all the like i come from a small town and i would have never dreamed of this all these yeah, kind it of all things yeah like, my, like you know the little kid from, yeah and i mean i don't know the biggest thing was not i didn't feel like I kind of just felt incredibly lucky. I felt a little bit guilty, actually. Imposter syndrome. I felt like I was not worthy of it because I've got so many friends who are incredible musicians, incredible producers, and people who have built, spent their entire life um, building really great music. Way more than way put in way more work than what I have, and I would and also have more skills than I have. Yeah. I mean, this is obviously just like a bit of kind of self, um, you know, skepticism, I guess, but. Yeah, I've kind of felt like maybe I didn't deserve it so much. Even though I was a really appreciative of it, I had, you know, I had kind of had all these different feelings, but uh, there was a, there was also like a, a level of guilt where I was like, wow, I get to perform a score. I mean, I wrote the score, it was all my music and all, so it's not not like, you know, like I was kind of cheating on that front, but that was like, wow, how do I tell my friends that have been doing music for 15 years and still you know yeah i remember when i found out about it i was just like oh fuck yeah like it was so i knew you did music in terms of like you know djing and you know i knew you did little bits of music here and there maybe runway stuff i mm. heard to a friend but then it was just like oh Graz is performing at the guggenheim i was like what and i just saw this photo of you behind the piano and i was like damn mm. it was really yeah, I was like proud moment, but also just like what the yeah. I could imagine the, if I had to seen that from an outsider that I would have been like that guy because it comes with all of these kind of like contexts. Like, well, if I'm playing the piano in the context of the Guggenheim, that yeah. perhaps you know, like I'm on the level of a piano player that is, you know, like virtuoso, which I'm not. But that also didn't matter because of the style of the music. Like it was all it was all music that I had written, and it was all all written within my skill set yeah. so yeah i so i knew that so, uh, that was might might have been a thing but any, any more movie scores coming up in the supposedly future supposedly there's one coming up but it keeps getting pushed back yeah because i have to lock in all of the different parts 
Yeah. Um, but nothing, there's nothing that's besides the, there's there's one another another one coming up with Patrick. Cool. Um, but other than that, it's just doing more um, compositions for runway shows. That's, yeah, that's the latest. Well, what what else holds the future of Graz generally? You know, you, sunglasses stuff, creative stuff. Well, I don't know. It's something I kind of ponder on all the time. I mean, I guess the, I don't think I'll ever be able to escape the kind of two magnets of design and music you know them being the kind of general themes and because i have an expertise in sunglasses in particular i imagine that um they're gonna that's gonna continue to kind of lead the way but i actually don't really know like i don't have any big projects that are on right now but so i mean I'm, i'm working on stuff with will that's all that's that's exciting but i think i'm just gonna kind of keep doing that and keep yeah. doing music and keep doing glasses i'm sure you've got something big in your pockets that you'll surprise me with no i mean for do. now it's just like getting better at piano and getting better at modu- learning my modular in, you know well here's the thing okay with the guggenheim thing i didn't even know you could fucking play piano and yeah. then i see you <laughs> playing a piano and i was like okay yeah that's so the guy just, right there. Yeah, that's that's where i'm at right now is actually like a kind of plateau like refining stuff cool getting spending more time on the craft and yeah and yeah. doing stuff like that also what i mean right now i i want to recalibrate and um find that perfect little nook of good in in the sunglass world of like good quality products and good um craftsmanship and have that work in this new social media world in some way that's like it's a respect to the craft and to 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 design where people are actually being like rewarded for making really nice stuff. Yeah. But how that exists in this really sort of fast and empty um, space of social media, I'm, try- I'm, I'm about to figure that, f- you know, problem out. That's I hope you I, do. Yeah. Um, and yeah, last question, I guess. Um, you're a man who looks after himself physically, mentally. You care a lot about your well-being. Do you have any tips how to be positively hardcore for anyone out there or how would you be hardcore positive i mean i just i'm a big believer in that meditation is such a powerful tool that is so simple and so available to everyone and without sounding like i'm trying to sell you some kind of meditation thing so la it's very (laughs) um you know if i had one one thing to say is like just don't worry about all the stuff around meditation don't listen to the people who you know like don't worry about people who get caught up in the identity of meditation and all the kind of weird tea drinking funny hats and and yoga pants and all that sort of stuff just forget about that entire thing the actual practice of meditation itself is everything like that's it's so beneficial it cleans the lens in which you experience the world and so that alone makes everything better. Cool. All right. Thank you, guys. That was really nice, in-depth chat with a good bud. Um, if you want to check out the two Patrick Pierce films that Graz has, uh, is it two you've done so far? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ellery in Par- Paris, and what was the other one called again? The Misfortunes of Francois Jane. Yeah. Go check them out because um, Graz scored the whole thing. 
Check out his sunglasses. Do you still do Grez Studio glasses or are no, you just so I'm, caught I'm, up on Eli? I'm going to relaunch actually. Um, I'm going to do – that was part of the thing that I was mentioning about. I need to figure out that thing. I want to relaunch Grez in a new way because it, it, in the past it was always done in a very traditional manner of, you know, optical shops and distributors and stuff. I want to figure out the internet way to do that. Um, so, yeah, that's – that's what's that's what's coming is a new a new addition a new iteration of that cool all right thanks Graz. Mm. um Graz is going to jump on for the next let's see what time 50 minutes and play some music for us all right all right thanks man yeah
l'énergie
what's up? This is Hardcore Positive. Uh, we just had Graz for the last 45 minutes or so after a tell-all interview. That was very insightful. Um, just wanted to take this moment to say that uh, my record label, Superconscious Records, is doing uh, a sale um, on all our stuff for our band camps that are going towards Red Cross's Bushfire Relief for the next few days until the 10th. Uh, a lot of other Aussie labels and brands are getting on this and it's all really nice to see. So uh, we'll be doing that until January 10th. And then, yeah, everything in our catalog, 100% is going to helping the victims of this devastating situation that's happening in Australia. Um, but there's a lot of other things you can, places you can also contribute. Uh, there's the New South Wales uh, Rural Fire Service. There's a car country fire authority. There's wires and RSPCA and the WWF, which is all for the protection of animals because there's people might have read uh, half a billion animals have perished in the fires at the moment. So it's all, um, yeah, it's all pretty terrible. So uh, yeah, every sort of dollar, anything that can be given is really appreciated. So yeah, thanks a lot. And thank you for tuning into Hardcore Positive. Thank you.